I think it takes something away from a fighter when he kills somebody in the ring. And then Ezra was a, he was a real, real kind guy. Ezra Charles's win over Sam Baruti was not supposed to define his career. It was supposed to be an easy fight for the Cincinnati Cobra to gain an audience in Chicago. But Ezard knocked Sam Baruti out with a sharp right hand in the 10th round, and Baruti died later that night. This is episode 3 of Total Fighter, a limited series about Ezard Charles. I'm Ricky Mulvey. In this episode, we're going to explore how the guilt of a killer knockout blow changed Ezard. We'll answer some questions, including how did the mafia pluck a nice guy out of Cincinnati? How did Ezard make us through the baddest men in fighting, Black Murderer's Row? How did he stay clean the whole time? The moments after Ezard's victory over Sam Baruti were quiet and slow. Ezard watched the medics bring a stretcher to the boxing ring. Chicago fans quickly filed out of the triple-tiered arena, and the crowd didn't need to listen to the high-pitched ring announcer's voice to hear who won. The bell, Emmett. Charles is the winner! 35-6! Baruti rode a stretcher to his locker room, and he briefly regained consciousness around midnight, but those around him knew that Sam Baruti had fought his last round. And that's when Baruti's manager, Mike Spinelli, grabbed the dying fighter's money and ran out of the arena. He didn't go to the hospital to see Baruti, he just wanted to get out of there because he knew uh, some bad stuff was gonna go down if Baruti died, which he did. That's William Detloff, author of Ezard Charles, A Boxing Life. Newspaper reporters caught Spinelli at the Chicago airport. The manager had tried to jump in a taxi, but the reporters barricaded Spinelli and prevented his departure. Those reporters found the manager carrying a briefcase with $4,000 inside, the purse that had belonged to his brain-dead fighter. And when Spinelli was asked why he had that money, he replied, quote, the kid is dead, so what? I can't help him now. Mike Spinelli eventually paid, though. It was because he squeezed his fighter the wrong way, which was too quickly. Mike Spinelli primarily worked as a truck driver, and he was just as greedy as the professional boxing managers, but he was not nearly as slick. The real pros slowly made millions by taking complete control of fighters' finances and careers. Chicago police had also booked Ezard on a manslaughter charge, but he was quickly released. They wanted to make sure there weren't horseshoes in his gloves, that there wasn't any foul play that they could find, but 11,000 people could have attested that Ezard was not guilty. And despite his legal innocence, Ezard Charles never wanted to fight again. Baruti's father, Sam Crandell Sr., though, was quick to forgive. He said that his son had also killed a man in the ring. Crandell later told the Cincinnati Post, quote, This was a terrible accident, but our family bears no bitterness at all toward you. Don't give up your career. Keep on and win the championship. But that forgiveness that Baruti's father showed, it, it wouldn't last forever. Yeah, and he, and he tried to su- he sued Ezard, tried to get money out of him, yeah. But that, you know what, um, that struck me as really unfortunate, but wow, really typical too. Isn't that a typical thing for a person to do? Doesn't, doesn't it seem that way to you? Like a, like a typical American move? Again, that's William Detloff. Somebody got in his ear and said, hey, you know what, he hit, he hit uh, your son a lot of times low. And he hit him a lot of times in the back of the head, and the referee didn't do anything about it. So that's really not right. Somebody should, you should try to sue him. 
And he started listening and he said, you know what? Yeah, I could use a few bucks. That's the way it happens. Ezra said that he would fight one more time and give the purse to Baruti's family. Then he was done, for good. But why did Ezra keep fighting? Maybe it was because he had some conversations with the only person who he could open up to, his future wife Gladys. A few years before Ezard Charles met Sam Baruti in the boxing ring, he met the love of his life outside of Woodward High School in Cincinnati, Gladys Gartrell. Now she told me, and he was sitting there, she said, that's the girl I'm going to marry. So he knew he wanted to have a family and start a relationship like that with her. That's Ezard Charles II, who is now a minister in the Chicago area. Ezard was on a roll as a boxer and a star in Cincinnati. He had just defeated Archie Moore, the second greatest light heavyweight ever at Music Hall Arena. But Gladys was not sold. And one afternoon, after the dismissal bell, Ezard spotted Gladys walking out of the five-story brick high school. My recollection is that uh, she uh, came from a very well-to-do family, and Ezard did not. So that might have had something to do with that, that she uh, declined him initially, declined his advances. He took his varsity jacket out of the dry cleaner's plastic and left his car. Ezard jogged along Reading Road to catch up with Gladys, and he invited her to his fight at Music Hall Arena against Oakland Billy Smith, but she politely declined. And that defeat stung Ez. He wasn't used to losing. He tried to invite her one more time, but took the hint and went back to his Cadillac dejected. But if Gladys went to that fight against Oakland Billy Smith, she went to Music Hall Arena she would have witnessed one of the most exciting boxing matches that Cincinnati ever saw, certainly one of the rowdiest. Oakland Billy Smith was an erratic and dangerous light heavyweight. He worked as a prison guard to pay the bills and often traveled cross country to fight in Cincinnati from his hometown, which I hope you can figure out. And 4,800 fans packed the Spartan Arena at Music Hall. A sold out sign greeted the hundreds who wanted to buy tickets at the gate. It was a smaller arena when you compare it to something like the gardens, but it was uh, smoke-filled, uh, a lot of cigars. The people who attended were, were generally a mix of, um, you know, probably 90% men um, who were wearing their fedoras and their suits and, and everything else. And that's Kevin Grace. He is an archivist at the University of Cincinnati, also wrote Cincinnati Boxing. Oakland Billy Smith was known as a gatekeeper fighter. That meant that only great fighters beat him. Anyone less was not that talented. Yeah, I think the audience gets into the fight. Yeah. If you sit there and watch it, they're throwing punches at the same time. <laughs> a lot of them. That's Frank Wettenkamp, who was a high school friend of Ezra Charles. Those who made it in saw a brutal fight. Smith landed the harder punches, but Ezard landed more. Charles even downed Oakland Billy in the sixth round, but the drowning fighter wrapped his arms around Charles and took him to the floor with him. Who actually won that fight remains an open question. The Cincinnati Inquirer gave five rounds to Charles, three to Smith, and called two even. The Cincinnati Post wrote that there was no disagreement from the crowd when Ezard was announced as the winner by a decision. But here's the thing. Sometimes boxing writers were encouraged to write a particular angle on the outcome of a fight. Sam Becker promoted the fight. He also owned a piece of Ezard's contract. That's usually a no-no. He said some 50 years later, quote, I not only promoted the fight and had a piece of the fighter, but I was judging the fight. I cast the vote that gave him a decision. 
uh, I don't want to scapegoat everyone in Rezich's losses because I think it might have gotten some things went in his favor too at some times. Bad decisions in boxing have been around since the game started, and the fight game will continue to be slanted, corrupt if you will, as long as its line between promoters and administrators is blurred. Combat sports are the only athletic competition where the scores are hidden until the end. I think the famous boxing trainer Teddy Atlas best described the problem with boxing judges after he watched a bad decision on ESPN's Friday Night Fights. They're pompous asses that they are with their pencils in their hands. Some of them never sweated, never bled in their life, never took a risk in their life, and they're just going to rip a decision away from a fighter. When a fighter goes in the ring, he doesn't always come out of the ring whole. And yes, Ezra got his share of lucky breaks in Cincinnati. For example, Ez was the only fighter who had Archie Moore's number, but a hometown advantage may have helped him eke out a win over that old mongoose in Music Hall Arena. Another example, the Irish blockbuster Fitzy Fitzpatrick downed Ez at Crosley Field in the second round of their 1947 match. After, the referee allowed the Cincinnati Cobra to hug on to Fitzy for 2 minutes and 30 seconds to clear his head and finish the round. Most refs, most fair referees, would have broken the fighters up and allowed Fitzy to land clean shots and possibly finish the fight. And when Ez KO'd Fitzy in the fifth round, the ref stood behind the knockdown fighter who was hard of hearing, so he couldn't see the count and then quickly counted him out of the fight. Ez was like the majority of boxing prospects. But he didn't only win because he had a hometown advantage. It's a toss-up between him and Sugar Ray Robinson as to the most complete fighter ever. That's Hamad Youssef, an amateur boxer and a scholar of the sweet science. Complete as in like he can fight on the inside, he can fight mid-range, he can fight, he can fight on the outside, he can he can use different angles, you know, you know what I mean? All that stuff. After World War II, Ez grew closer with the people who would make him champion. That includes the boxing trainer Jimmy Brown. Cincinnati boxing coach Daryl P-Man Jones remembers being in the gym with him. Jimmy Brown didn't take no mess. I mean, he used to smack me around in the gym. Buddy LaRosa later brought Jimmy Brown on to train Aaron the Hawk Pryor, one of Cincinnati's great boxers in the 1970s and 80s. Jimmy always liked to get in the ring with the fighter and he'll hold the pads. And then when he threw a one-two, if he didn't finish with a hook, then uh, Jimmy would say, hey, now, see here, I'm hitting you. Jimmy Brown and Ezard understood that prize fighting was a dangerous and sometimes deadly business. Women would try to come in to the gym to, you know, take autographs. And, but Ezard wasn't on that. He came, Ezard was, he was fully pledged about his fight. Many of those involved with boxing are good people, particularly the athletes and the trainers. But boxing is an inherently corruptible sport. Scores are hidden until the end. Promoters pay the referees and the judges. The Mafia did not make boxing a dirty game, but mobsters were well-suited to run the sport. Madison Square Garden was boxing's capital, and at best, MSG's administrators were yes-men to crooks. At worst, they were the gunmen for Murder, Inc., they were the gangsters who were hired to kill other gangsters. Those mafiosos were the people keeping Ezard from getting a shot at the current light heavyweight title holder, Gus Lesnovich. And that shows the mob's influence, by the way. He could not get a shot at Gus Lesnovich throughout his light heavyweight career because the mob knew that he was going to kick Gus's ass. Again, that's William Detloff, author of Ezard Charles, A Boxing Life. 
The mob had sunk its teeth into boxing in a few different ways. They owned fighters' contracts, they promoted the fights, they ran bookies taking bets on the fights, and they made sure the outcome went in their favor when it was necessary. Mike Jacobs, the promoter at Madison Square Garden, even slipped checks to the newspaper writers in the Forest Hotel's bar so they'd stay on the message that he wanted. Every boxing writer and boxing manager called Mike Jacobs Uncle Mike, but none of them could dredge up any kind words about him when it came to his obituary, because Mike Jacobs ruled boxing with an iron fist, and he was in no hurry to put Ezard on Madison Square Garden's main stage. One reason may have been it was difficult to sell tickets to boxing shows headlined by black fighters. Joe Lewis and Ray Robinson were exceptions to the rule. So you could call it a lucky break for Ez, that in 1946, a brain hemorrhage took Mike Jacobs out of commission and paved a way for a gangster promoter who was significantly more receptive to the Cincinnati Cobra. Sam Baruti died of a brain hemorrhage from a blow to the head. Mike Jacobs slowly died from a brain hemorrhage from organizing other people to punch each other in the head. And Jacobs' incapacitation opened the door for the savage mobster Frankie Carbo, aka Mr. Gray, to take his place as the unofficial boss of boxing. Carbo was formerly a hired gun for Murder, Inc. That was the enforcement arm of the Italian and Jewish mafia families in New York. Carbo allegedly assassinated the Las Vegas icon Bugsy Siegel and was arrested for the murder of a taxi driver who refused to pay into his protection racket. In both cases, law enforcement could not find a soul to testify against Frankie Carbo. About five years before Carbo saw Ezra Charles, one former hitman, Abe Kid Twist Rellis, threatened to testify against Carbo. Rellis hid out in a hotel and was guarded by police, but a testimony against Carbo and La Cosa Nostra was out of the question. So Frankie Carbo helped pay the five police officers $100,000 to toss Abe Rellis out of his hotel room's window. Rellis immediately died upon impact and became known as the canary who could sing, but could never fly. The Cincinnati managers didn't play the game that the Mafia did quite as well, but Jake Mintz, Ezard's manager, did. It's likely that Jake Mintz and Ezard Charles knew who they were dealing with when they signed fights with him. And they grabbed Ezra because he was a talent. He was a talent. He was a moneymaker. So, you know, they grabbed him. That's, that was their life. That was their business. Again, that's Ezra Charles's son, the minister, Ezra Charles. When Jake Mintz started receiving a percentage of Ezra's fights, he received a larger piece if that event took place outside of Cincinnati. This may have led to his antics when Ezra fought in Cincinnati. For example, he told any fan who would listen during that Fitzpatrick fight at Crosley Field that Ez was never fighting in his hometown again. And Cincinnati promoters Sam and Benny Becker claimed that Jakeman screwed them over. The crafty manager had put one of Ez's fights against Jimmy Bivens in Cleveland when he promised Cincinnati. Therefore, the Becker brothers didn't promote the fight and didn't make any money on it. But through Jake Mintz, Ez received his first chance to fight in New York City at Madison Square Garden. Ez knew that that's where the real money was. What, what else contributed to your getting started in this fight game? Well, like, like everyone else, uh, I thought, you know, that I could uh, win some money from it, and it has proven that you can win some money out of fighting. And you could win a lot of money by boxing in New York City. But Ezard's grandmother knew about the dangers of the Big Apple. That's where his mother lived. And she only allowed the number one light heavyweight contender in the world to go if he brought his friend, his backup. That's Richard Christmas. She thought he should be with him, you know. 
because he was a tall guy too. You know, he he had a little weight on him. You know, he thought Richard should be with him when he goes to New York. Shouldn't be by himself. But no, he wasn't protecting my dad. My dad more than likely was protecting Richard. Boxing coach Daryl P. Man Jones remembers traveling with Richard Christmas years later. He kept notes of everything. He used to show me how to uh, keep my taxes together. When we go out of town, he showed me how to keep all gas receipts, all grocery receipts. Anything that I spent money on, he said, keep them receipts because you can file taxes off anything that you buy. You know, I didn't, I didn't know that. Joe Lewis only had business partners like Frankie Carbo and Mike Jacobs. Ezra Charles at least had Richard Christmas on his side, and that made a huge difference. Nobody could steal from Ezra. They had to go through Richard to get any part of Ezra's money. Ezra matched up in Madison Square Garden against Elmer Ray, nicknamed Violent. Elmer Ray was a member of Black Murderer's Row, a group of middleweight and light heavyweight black boxers who were so feared by white fighters that they almost never received title shots. They existed in a catch-22. Fighters like Elmer Ray, Charlie Burley, and almost Ezra Charles were too good to fight for a title. Jersey Joe Walcott fought Ray a number of times and later said about him, quote, I recognized Ray as a kindred soul as soon as I threw a right to the body. The spirit was willing, but the stomach was empty. Ray was 20 pounds heavier than Ez, but a 2-to-1 underdog, and the powers at Madison Square Garden promised that a decisive win by either fighter would line them up for a match against Joe Lewis. And while you know Madison Square Garden is a beautiful and expensive arena, Ezard fought in a previous iteration that was more like an office building joined to a sports arena, and above that was unrented retail space and a skating rink. Ezard and Elmer fought viciously for that Joe Lewis shot. The Ring magazine said, quote, Ray was the aggressor most of the way, but Charles was faster, the better boxer and the sharper hitter. In most cases, that would mean that Ezra Charles won the fight, because boxing is not just about punching power, it's about landing effective punches, controlling your opponent, and ring generalship. But the judges at ringside gave Elmer Ray the decision. Uh, but I think that was probably a case where uh, the mob's hand was uh, almost visible. But in retrospect, it's obvious that the fight was slanted. Before the bout, Elmer Ray's manager advised boxing writers, quote, I wouldn't bet a nickel on this fight. I don't know how Ray's right shoulder will hold up. He hurt it in his first fight against Jersey Joe Walcott last winter. He's liable to throw the shoulder out at any time. Now, it's obvious that the manager was just trying to build the public's pool of money on Ezard Charles and get better odds for his money. And after the fight, Joe Lewis said he had no interest in facing Elmer Ray in the ring. He thought Elmer Ray was a vicious fighter but not a true boxer, and Lewis would be liable to be hurt by a headbutt. The Madison Square Garden administrators also said that the win was not decisive enough to earn a shot at Lewis for the title. There's also the possibility that Lewis rarely fought other black boxers for the heavyweight title less his decision and more that of the mobs. So Ray was out of the picture and Ezra Charles took just another step backward in becoming the heavyweight champion of the world. No film of that Elmer Ray Ezra Charles fight survives and I, I really wish there were more of Ezra's films at Light Heavy. Instead, there's only one. There's only one, one fight of his available on Light Heavyweight. It's against Lord Marshall. And over there, you can really see he's much more aggressive than the other films of his. 
So he stops Floyd Marshall with a body shot in that film, a very well-trained body shot. Then the rest of the fight films, they're heavyweight. And over there, you can see the, you can see a difference. He's much more cautious in a sense, yeah. Again, that's Hamad Youssef. But one thing was going right in Ezard's life, his relationship with Gladys. Gladys saw that the star athlete wasn't going for a quick fling. And some would say the Lord told him, that's your wife. You know, you're going to have children with her. She uh, declined him initially, declined his advances. But he stuck in there. And if I recall right, uh, she was selling something for schoolers for some reason. And he bought a whole bunch of it to get in her good side. And it worked. The two got married in a private ceremony, though they lived in separate houses. So Ezard could continue to focus on training. Ezard's career was fighting and clobbering people over the head. He was quiet and reserved outside of the ring. Gladys proved to be a perfect opposite for him. He didn't want to hit us. You know, he's a fight. He was a boxer. He grew up with kids. He let mom handle that. Ezard Charles II grew up in a different time. Parenting methods were not the same as they are in 2020. And he never spanked me. My mother spanked me. My mother spanked all of us when we had to have a spanking. My sisters didn't do as much as me, but I brought a note home from my third grade teacher. I had to take those blue jeans off. She got me right there on the bed with the, the, the boxer shorts on, <laughs> with those briefs on, and tore me up with that belt, man. And while Ez waited for his next opportunity, he fought anyone who Jake Mintz put in front of him. He beat Archie Moore in a decision in front of 10,000 people in Cleveland's massive sports arena. He also knocked around a 7-win, 20-loss heavyweight at a dusty armory in Akron. And during this stretch of fights, Ezard had his tragic meeting with Sam Baruti in the ring. And while some say that Baruti's death led Ezard to lose his knockout punch, the truth is more complex. And Ezard wasn't willing to talk about the difficulties he was going through with the world. But, you know, intimacy, I don't know what he told my mother, because I know they were intimate. She knew just about everything. And that's what intimacy is. People think that's having sex. Intimacy is when you share inner things with somebody that you trust. Again, that's Ezra Charles II, the minister, Ezra Charles. Ezard asked for a soft entrance back into the boxing game after the tragic death of Sam Baruti. His manager, Jake Mintz, used the increased publicity to draw attention to Gus Lesnovich and call out that false light heavyweight champion to see if Ezard could fight him in the wake of Baruti's death. But the powers that be that ran boxing knew that a benefit match that Ezard wanted wasn't going to generate any money, so that idea was nixed. And Gus Lesnovich's manager said they still weren't interested in fighting the Cincinnati Cobra, so that idea was out the window too. The next opponent who was brought in was Elmer Ray, the alligator wrestler who Ezard lost to at Madison Square Garden. And to twist the knife further, Ezard had to fight at Chicago Stadium, which was the venue where he killed Sam Baruti. It might be more entertaining to say that when Ezard stepped through the ropes at Chicago Stadium, he was haunted by the ghost of Sam Baruti. But Ezard focused on the task at hand, beating the hard-punching Elmer Ray. And in this fight, he didn't leave it to the judge's decision. He knocked violent Elmer Ray out in the ninth round. I say, when you're in that ring, what do you think about Ezard? <laughs> That's a funny question. <laughs> I can think of nothing but the man in front of me. It's a bad time to think of anything else, isn't it? Right. After the fight, Ezard publicly called out Gus Lesnovich, saying it was time for them to match up, and he privately gave his purse to Baruti's family, $5,000.
After Gus Lesnovich slated Ezard yet again, he finally gave up hope on getting a shot at the light heavyweight title. Ezard made a more permanent move to the heavyweight division for the financial opportunities, even though he was significantly undersized in that division. Walking around, he was naturally like 160, 170 pounds, and he was fighting guys with a hell of a lot more power. And he always fought bigger, heavier, more powerful people. Jersey Joe Walcott, he fought him four, three or four times. And Jersey Joe, I know one punch I saw a picture of where he hit Ezard right flat on the chin would have knocked out nine out of ten heavyweights, didn't knock Ezard out. As a heavyweight, he, he wasn't really the, the same boxer puncher he was as a like, heavyweight, as a middleweight. You first heard from Buddy LaRosa, founder of LaRosa's Pizza, longtime Cincinnati boxing icon. After that was Hamad Youssef. He has studied Ezra Charles very closely, particularly his technique, scholar of the sweet science. Ezra did not wait long to get big fights at heavyweight. His bout against Joey Maxim opened up the Cincinnati Gardens. Joey Maxim wasn't a palooka, a ham and egg, or someone Ezra could easily walk over, but he was a single threat fighter. He jabbed with the left, and that was his most powerful punch. With his right hand, and what they say when a, a fighter can't punch with the other hand, what they call it, he couldn't break an egg with the right hand. But what Joey Maxim lacked in punching power, he made up in toughness. He was only knocked out once in his career. He fought Sugar Ray Robinson in hellish heat in New York City. It was so hot that the referee had to stop in the middle of the fight. Sugar Ray collapsed of heat stroke and delirium in the 13th round, but Joey Maxim stood standing. Cincinnati fans were hyped for Ezra Charles to face Maxim. They expected their hometown fighter to win, but Maxim was going to be an awfully tough test. The promoter, Sam Becker, said that he was willing to pay $400,000 to bring the heavyweight championship shot to the winner of the Joey Maxim and Ezra Charles fight should it take place in Cincinnati. It's hard to overstate how excited Cincinnatians were for the opening of the Cincinnati Gardens. Sure, Madison Square Garden held a few thousand more people, but Cincinnati Gardens was significantly more beautiful and awe-inspiring. The arena cost $3 million to build and took 2,200 tons of steel. You could fit a 10-story building inside the main room, and in an uncommon move, the Cincinnati Gardens had no interior pillars that blocked the sight lines, making just about every seat in that arena a great one. 14,000 fans had bought tickets to the fight. The New York mob was paying attention. Joe Lewis had his people there to see who he may face for the title shot. And Frankie Carbo had started to send some of his goons to explain to the promoter, Sam Becker, what the deal was going to be if he really wanted a heavyweight title in Cincinnati. Fight night came with the trappings and shenanigans that can come with a big time boxing match. The Cincinnati Boxing Commission, for example, gave press passes to their family, their friends, the friends of any friends, and blocked out the press row for all of the sports writers. The main event didn't start until 10.30 p.m., much to the chagrin of those blocked out sports writers. And the gardens was filled with so much cigarette and cigar smoke that the people in the top rows of the arena couldn't see the main floor. But according to some of those pissed off sports writers, there wasn't much to see in the fight. Ezard started aggressively, and Joey Maxim got his jab working in the middle rounds. Maxim couldn't keep the pressure on Charles, though, and any chance that he had of winning was over after Ezard knocked him with a hard right in the 13th. One headline after the fight wrote, 
Cincinnati Negro gets decision, but adds little to challenger prestige, end quote. Joe Lewis announced that he was giving up his heavyweight title. He sold it to some businessmen who were associated with the International Boxing Commission, and they formed a promotional company who would decide who would take that title. Ezard would have to navigate these murky waters in the wake of Joe Lewis's retirement to make a name for himself. That's next time on Total Fighter. This show is hosted, written, produced, edited by me. My name's Ricky Mulvey. Uh, you can find all the music notations at totalfighter.blueberry.net. Also, special thanks to William Detloff, Buddy LaRosa, Hamad Youssef, Ezra Charles II, Daryl P. Man Jones, Kevin Grace, also Carolyn Eyre. Thanks for checking out the show early and for your notes. And uh, apologies for the delay. Apologies, it uh, took a little bit to get this show out. Uh, I wanted to do it right. It took a few more weeks than I was expecting. If you can, please send the show to a friend. Like it, subscribe it wherever you're listening. Helps other people find it and uh, really helps me out. Takes you a few seconds to do. All right, see you in about two or three weeks. Bye.